We're back. Back in Romans. Romans chapter 9. We were back last week. But we're especially back today. And he begins this passage clarifying that he's speaking the truth. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were a politician, your advisors would probably tell you not to use phrases like honestly in your speeches. Because when you do, it suggests that your default position is dishonesty. And for this statement, you're switching from dishonesty to honesty. So say, honestly, I believe such and such about such and such. It suggests that all your previous statements maybe weren't honest, that you had to clarify. But that's not what Paul's doing here. What Paul is doing here is he's sort of stopping his argument kind of abruptly that we've been following in Romans. And he's leaning in toward us and he's saying, seriously, I'm telling you the truth. These are not idle words. This is not hyperbole. This is not the grandiose words of the hyper-spiritual. You've been around some people that are hyper-spiritual. And everything they says is so lofty, you begin to think... It almost doesn't even seem real anymore. Paul does not want what he's about to say to be discarded because it's extreme. So he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. In verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsman, according to the flesh. Now, just to catch up, who he's talking about, his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, is Israel, is the Jewish people, as he goes on to explain in the rest of this, these couple of verses. So since it's been a while since we've really dug into Romans, we'll just refresh our memories of what this letter is about. It's written by Paul, who wrote the majority of the books in the New Testament. Uh, the Paul that used to kill Christians and be part of the crowd that would torture them. And uh, he held the jackets of everybody when they stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr that we have on record. So God saved him dramatically. Now, Paul was a very devout and prominent Jew, part of Israel, when he became a Christian, when he believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah that they had been waiting for. And so God used Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles is everybody else. So you have Israel, God's special chosen people throughout history. And you can go back into Genesis and see the beginnings of Israel, God's uh, set-aside, holy, chosen race of people. So you're either in Israel, Jewish, or you're Gentile. You're everybody else. So through Paul, God took this gospel of the Jewish Messiah to the Gentiles and said, it's, he's our hope, all of us, Jew or Gentile. Now that's important to know because the Roman church was a mixture of both, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians. It was a mixture of the, the ones who had all the traditions, all the laws, all the feasts, all the, um, all the regular lifestyle of being God's people. They believed in Christ. They entered into Christianity with that mindset. 
they were mixed in in the Roman church with the Gentiles, those who had probably been worshiping pagan gods. Many of that, much of that worship may have included, you know, temple prostitutes and just all kinds of, of crazy things. They come to Christ from that mindset. And then God likes to mix them all together. And so that's what we have in the Roman church. So early on in the book of Romans, we, we studied and realized that one of Paul's deep motivations for writing this letter was to try to bring unity from all this diversity. Because there is a diversity among the, the church, capital C church, the Christians across the world. There's a huge diversity. We may not always see it in here. I pray that we will start to see more. But you know, some of our world travelers will tell you being among Christians and fellowshipping doesn't look the same in a remote tribe in Africa as it does here. But we can all be united. So does anybody remember, I'm not actually asking you to answer me, I'm just coming off of Sunday school, so I'm still in the uh, Sunday school teacher mode. But Rhetorically, do you remember the tool that Paul uses to bring unity from all this diversity, all these different kinds of people? It's the gospel. And all of Romans is really an extended meditation on the gospel, the good news. The fact that Jewish or Gentile, we're in big trouble. Because of our sin. We're disconnected from a holy God because of our sin. And God came to us to take care of that problem in the person of Jesus Christ. So in Jesus we have forgiveness and we have cleansing. We have changed, renewed hearts. And we're reconciled to God. And then we can be reconciled to ourselves and our families. And it's our one singular hope is Jesus Christ. And that's what unites these people. That's what will unite us as a church as well. So that catches you up basically to where we're at here in Romans 9. And Paul, he just got done talking about how loving God is, how nothing can separate us from God's love. And he he breaks that train of thought and he leans in and he says, but I, I would give my salvation away if it meant that my brothers, the Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, if they could just believe. Now, it's important to hear his tone of voice here before we move into chapter 9. Raise your hand if you're somewhat familiar with chapter 9 and how controversial it is. Okay, a couple people. It's pretty controversial. It's a tough chapter of Scripture. Uh, My friend Justin Nash, who came and shared with us at Revival, we were riding, we'd gone to lunch or something, and it was way back in Romans when we were about to study chapter 2. And chapter 2 is tough. It has some tough things to say about some, you know, socially hot button issues like sexuality. And I told him, you know, I was a little nervous because it's a hard truth that's in Romans chapter two. And he just sort of laughed at me and said, chapter two is easy. Wait till you get to chapter nine. He's like, I want to be in there and hear you preach chapter nine. I think he thinks this is funny to see me up here trying to preach Romans chapter nine because it is tough. It's going to be hard plowing the next couple of weeks. I'm not going to lie to you. But it's very important to hear Paul's heart here before we launch into it. It's like a, an email versus a phone call. You can have an email with someone and you can read all kinds of anger into it or sarcasticness into it. But if you had talked to the individual on the phone, you might realize, no, they're actually... You know, something totally different. They're concerned or they're being sweet. <laughs> I mean, it's very easy to get the wrong impression when you're just looking at 
ink on a page. So this Sunday, before we really launch into the meat of chapter 9, we're just going to think for a moment about the emotion underneath it, the love, the heart that undergirds it. And it'll be really beneficial for us, I promise. So, what is the emotion that you would hear in Paul's voice if you're actually speaking with him as he begins this really three chapters of doctrine and theology? You see it in verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. His sorrow, his anguish, his grief, it's heavy, it's great, it's unceasing, it's unremitting. It weighs him down often. If you just isolated just that verse about his emotion, it would sound like someone who needed antidepressants. I mean, just look at just how he feels. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Almost sounds like a cry for help. He's really disturbed. And all this emotion is in his heart. It's not some outward show to try to make what he's about to say taste a little better. From deep within him, he is greatly troubled and distressed because of his concern for his brothers. There's an old uh, DC Talk song. Does anybody remember DC Talk? Yeah. They tried to make Christian music cool. They may have succeeded somewhat. They were pioneers. But they had a song. Um, I don't remember the title, but it was probably something like Red Letters. It was, And the main message of the song is there's love in the red letters. You remember that one? Maybe not. Okay. It's true. <laughs> okay, good. Thanks, Tim. It, there's love in the red letters, and it's really a very beautiful song. I really, that's one of my favorite songs of theirs. Um, but there's also love in the black letters. The red letters are in... Certain Bibles, they'll print Jesus' quotations in red. But there's love in the black letters too. There's love in Paul's writings too. There's love in Romans chapter 9. Deep, deep, passionate love in Romans chapter 9. Some of you are like reading ahead wondering, what is he talking? Why is he making such a big deal about it? You'll, you'll find out. So I, I really just have three very simple observations before um, next week we really start to roll up our sleeves and dig in. Okay, the first one is this. Doctrine and devotion, meaning devotion to people, they're both essential. Doctrine and devotion are both essential. They're like two wheels on a bike. You need both of them if you're going to get anywhere. Some of you, well, many people, and maybe you're one of them, in your mind, you see two different camps within Christianity. You see the serious-minded Bible guys, the ones who read a lot of books, write book reviews, go to seminary. They're always studying. They like to argue. They like to discuss. They're serious-minded Bible guys. And then there's serious-hearted people guys. They volunteer. They care about social justice. They cry. They hug, and they're two separate groups. And often there are, but if you're one or the other, there's a serious problem. 
Because what the gospel does is it develops both. Serious-minded Bibleness and serious-hearted peopleness. They're one and the same. They're interlocked. They're interwoven. So I'm curious for your own sake. Again, you don't have to answer out loud. You can shoot me a signal or something. Do you lean one direction much more heavily than the others? Are you one of the people that leans really heavy on Bible and doctrine and truth? You'll talk about it all day long. You're not probably going to go volunteering or petting a puppy. That has nothing to do with loving people. You know what I mean. You're a serious-minded Bible person. Or are you on the other scale? You don't, I don't really care about getting in all these deep theological discussions. You know, there's people who are hurting. Let's just go love people. Let's just go hug people and give them a sack lunch. We don't need all this stuff. Do you lean heavily toward one or the other, forsaking the opposite? It's something to consider. Uh, I heard a conversation recently between two megachurch pastors, um, one of which might appear to be more in this camp, the people camp, one of which might appear on the outside to be more in the just doctrine camp. And so it was at a conference where they televised or filmed their discussions and they were discussing it and they were basically arguing about it. And, you know, guy right here says, you know, I've heard you on tape telling your congregation, if you want theology, go somewhere else. Cause we baptized a thousand people last year and that's what we're about. And so the guy over here was like, I can't understand that. What are you baptizing them into? What are you teaching them? What will they do after their baptism? Will you teach them? Will they grow? And guy over here is like, yeah, but we don't want to get all hung up on doctrine. And you understand the debate. Yeah, by the end, I think they both realized that they both cared about grace and truth. They both cared about truth and people. That's how we have to be. The Bible's about grace and truth. So as we get into Romans 9, just know now before the outset that as Paul, as all his doctrine is flowing through his pen, deep love is bursting out of his heart. And they're flowing at us at the same time. Okay, so that's my first Observation, doctrine and devotion are both essential. Doctrine without devotion is dead. Doctrine without devotion is dead. Like James said, faith without works is dead. Doctrine without devotion to people is dead. If we're able to study Romans chapter 9, if we're able to really wrangle this thing and understand it with crystal clarity, and we walk away without deep concern for real people, something went wrong in there. If we're able to come and hear sermons weekly, listen to them in, by podcast in our car, on the radio, have our quiet time every morning, and there isn't swelling up within us deep, passionate, real love and concern for people, something's going wrong. We become like the Pharisees. You remember how Jesus talked to the Pharisees? Really harsh. The Pharisees were the well-educated Jewish folks. They really knew the law, but they didn't care about people. I mean, not all of them, but generally. And so you can look back in Matthew chapter 23 and see some of his really harsh words for them. And I remember in seminary, seminary can be a Pharisee factory. 
and I didn't realize that until I did two years of Bible college, and then I went into seminary at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, a Southern Baptist Seminary. Awesome school. Loved it. But it could, many pharisaical people came from there, and a lot of pharisaical tendencies were sown into me there um, that, you know, I'm working on, repenting of. Uh, um, I remember being in an ethics class, a Christian ethics class, a class where we would talk about all the ethical tricky issues like war, should Christians be pacifists or should they grab their rifle, uh, abortion and sexuality and money issues and euthanasia, all the tricky stuff. And you talk about it in kind of a sterile way, look at Bible verses and then make your call on how you're going to be. And I remember my, I had a really good professor, Mark Lederbach. And uh, one day he just set aside the whole class to talk about the Pharisees. And he painted a portrait of the Pharisees. And as he did, I realized, at first we were all like, man, those guys are idiots. I can't believe those doofuses were like that. And then as he kept going, the smile sort of started to fade from our faces. And we were like, oh, he's talking about us. The, sometimes the closest resemblance to a Pharisee can be found in church pews like these. And it's, it's anti-gospel. It's sick and it's dead. And that's not how Paul was. Paul thought deeply about theology and doctrine, but it didn't make him cold or deaden his devotion to people. On the contrary, if you look on forward after chapter 9, you see sort of the results of this meditation on, on doctrine and the important things of God, this clear thinking about God. In uh, 10.1, we see, he says, brothers, my heart's desire, my prayer and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. As he thinks about this, it's, it's stirring up heart, deep desire for the salvation of people. And then further on in verse 14 and forward, we see it's also stirring up in him the desire not just to think clearly about God, but to think clearly about how do we go and work to serve people. He says, how, how will these people who don't know Jesus call on him? in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So for Paul, clear thinking about the gospel and Jesus and the things of God led him directly to deep desire to see people saved and clear plan of action to get busy. So we can't, as we launch into some pretty intellectual stuff in the coming weeks, we can't sit here and get puffed up on, wow, I understand things more deeply. If it doesn't lead us out to people, then we're doing something wrong. And I have a, a quote from a man named John Piper, who, you know, I've quoted a lot. I've tried not to quote him so much lately. I've tried to read other people too. You, it's dangerous when you just get digging in and read one person all the time. But I heard a sermon that he preached out of Romans 9, and he shared something personal about himself that really caught my ear, and I thought I'd share it with you. I mean, Romans 9 can be one of the most sterile passages in the Bible. It's, it's difficult, but it completely blew his life apart. So I just want to read to you his experience of the chapter we're about to read. He says, The fall of 1979, I was negative three years old then. 
just to highlight how old some of you folks are. I like to do that from time to time. I don't know, it makes me feel good about myself. That's, that's evil, isn't it? It was the fall of 1979. I was on sabbatical from teaching at Bethel College. He was like a seminary professor. My one aim on this leave was to study Romans 9 and write a book on it that would settle in my own mind the meaning of these verses. After six years of teaching and finding many students in every class ready to discount my interpretation of this chapter for one reason or another, I decided that I had to give eight months to it. The upshot of that sabbatical was the book, The Justification of God, in which I tried to answer every important exegetical objection to God's absolute sovereignty in Romans 9. In other words, he really wrestled with this chapter for like eight months, wrote a book. But the result of that sabbatical was utterly unexpected, at least by me. My aim was to analyze God's words so closely and to construe them so carefully that I could write a book that would be compelling and stand the test of time. What I did not expect was that six months into this analysis of Romans 9, God himself would speak to me so powerfully that I resigned my job at Bethel and made myself available to the Minnesota Baptist Conference if there were a church who would have me as a pastor. In essence, it happened like this. I was 34 years old. I had two children and a third on the way. As I studied Romans 9 day after day, I began to see a God so majestic and so free and so absolutely sovereign that my analysis merged into worship. And the Lord said, in effect, I will not simply be analyzed. I will be adored. I will not simply be pondered. I will be proclaimed. My sovereignty is not simply to be scrutinized. It is to be heralded. It is not grist for the mill of controversy. It is gospel for sinners who know that their only hope is in the sovereign triumph of God's grace over their rebellious wills. This is when Bethlehem contacted me near the end of 1979. And I do not hesitate to say that because of Romans 9, I left teaching and became a pastor. The God of Romans 9 has been the rock-solid foundation of all I have said and all I have done in the last 22 years. So we're about to embark on a difficult chapter, but it's going to be awesome. It might completely blow your life apart and mine. Last observation. So devotion to people and doctrine are both essential Doctrine without devotion is dead, but devotion to people without doctrine is dead too. Devotion to people without doctrine is like a kite without a string. What starts off as compassion flutters away and lands in a pile of silliness. And we see this. It it leads us to all kinds of misguided attempts to help people. It leads us to care more about the desires, the rights of people than God's design and God's demands. And it can feel so good and it can feel so self-righteous because we come so close to living by our design. And I think this might be our greater danger. I don't think our danger here 
is that we'll become so scholarly about the Bible that we stop caring about people. I think our greater danger is that we'll elevate the second most important commandment over the first. The first most important commandment Jesus taught us was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all your everything. And the second is similar, is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. I think we, we will have to fight and beware of a tendency in the schemes of our enemy to elevate command number two over command number one to where we care more about people than we do about God. And it's subtle, isn't it? That's how our enemy works. He's not going to come in here and tempt us to replace all our crosses with swastikas. But he can pretty successfully tempt us to be all about compassion and forget about worship and doctrine and what's true. Be all about grace and forget about truth. And it's equally dead. Are there cold-hearted people that know a lot of doctrine and Bible? Sure. But I can promise you, it, people don't grow cold toward people due to overexposure to the Bible and theology and doctrine. There's other factors at work there. So we need to fight against a kind of anti-intellectual, anti-study. You know, God revealed himself in a book. So we need, for every one trip out to serve someone, every one trip out to crisis assistance to volunteer, we need 10 trips into here. So that we know that we really are helping. So that our passion really is worship and not just self-promotion. So that we really are able to love our spouses, our children, our friends, and we're not just using them to fill a void. You know, it's, it's hard to preach a sermon like this because I feel like, oh man, I know people are struggling with specific things. I need to talk about marriage. I need to talk about finances. I need to talk about pet grooming, you know, whatever the most practical stuff is that people are dealing with. But if you read Paul's letter, he always goes, extended meditation on the gospel, a couple of practical suggestions based on it. Romans, it's been the first half, extended meditation on the gospel, Three chapters of really difficult meditation on the gospel. And then the rest of the book is practical outworking based on it. So it does lead to very practical, very real, very nitty-gritty life benefit. So, Romans 9 through 11. It's going to be fun. Are you all excited? I don't believe you. I didn't. I was not convincing. It's going to stretch us, and it's going to challenge us, and it's going to be really good. And I, I will make a pledge to you. I will do my very best, and I will work as hard as I can to make God's word plain and clear. I will not put energy into affectation. I will not put energy into manipulating emotions when we're here together. I will do my best to make things plain and clear. And I have expectations for you. I expect you to take this stuff seriously. I want you, I'm asking you as your pastor, I want you to read this chapter. Just stick with this one chapter this week. Try to, try to get it in the whole chapter once a day. It's like 33, it's 33 verses. Be 
shocked by it. Be outraged by it. Think about what you see. I will do my best to make this plain in preaching and teaching and conversation and counseling, but I expect you to take it seriously and think about it. Uh, I had an experience recently that led me to tweet. Sounds so dumb when you say it out loud, but <laughs> led me to tweet a statement, something like, it was a plea, please don't be sucked into vague uh, emotional churchiness because there's clear, real, awesome, wonderful truth about Jesus and our God and our life to be interacted with. And I really mean that. I, I want you to think about what you read in here. I want you to think about what you hear from your Sunday school teachers, your house-to-house hosts, from me when I preach. I might be a false teacher. The Bible says there's false teachers that will lead you astray. And I don't think the false teachers know that they're false teachers. I don't think they wake up and plan out how to falsely teach their congregations. I bet they think they're doing a pretty good job. So I think I'm doing a pretty good job, but I might be wrong. And I'll be held responsible for that, but you'll be held responsible for what you believe. So read Romans 9. Take it seriously. Ask your questions. Write them down. Hit your house-to-house hosts hard with questions, except for tomorrow night at mine. Ron's group, the Lowry group, Will Boston especially. I think this is going to be really good for us. I think it's going to clarify a lot. I think it will disturb a lot. Um, But I'm excited about what's to come. I'm excited about what God's already doing. Right now, I just want to to pray for us that God will have his way in all this. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you that you chose to reveal yourself to us at all. Thank you that you chose to come and save us. Those who would believe and give their lives to and follow Jesus Christ. I pray that as we, uh, as we work earnestly and as best we can to read your word and be submissive to it and understand it, uh, I pray that you would just bless this effort, feeble as it might be. We're not scholars. We're not brilliant people. Um, but you've given us your Holy Spirit, and you've promised that it will lead us to all truth. And you're pro- we've promised that the truth sets people free. And uh, I just pray for all sorts of deep blessings as we meditate on this passage for really this whole month. I pray for deep blessings that will work their way out of our hearts into the most practical aspects of our lives. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.